This is Daniel Korshin, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome back to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up at the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 707 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of the most popular episodes from Radio Free Leader sent right to your email inbox, and you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 707 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Today's episode features Daniel Korshin. Daniel is an associate professor of marketing at Drexel University, and he's the author of a book that I loved called We Are Market Basket, the story of the unlikely grassroots movement that saved a beloved business. Now, on a personal note, uh, when I was a kid, I used to work at Market Basket first as a bag boy, then as a cashier, and then eventually actually as an assistant manager, my first managerial role, if you will from middle school all through college worked there and got to know a lot of the story of this company. And so a few years ago when there was a dramatic attempt to oust the CEO and the non-union employees of Market Basket, along with customers, actually stood up to the board and said, we want our CEO back. It's an amazing story of the power of leadership, especially the power of leadership in what Daniel Corshin calls a reciprocal trust environment. It's an amazing story, and I love it even more because it's told by a business professor who understands the social science behind what's going on. It's a great interview. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'd learn an absolute ton. So without further ado, our interview with Daniel Corshin. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Daniel Corshin. I'm an associate professor of marketing at Drexel University. And the author of a book that sort of allowed me to relive my childhood, right? We Are Market Basket, the story of an unlikely grassroots movement that saved a beloved business. I, I guess actually the first question, you're a business professor. How did you get into this mess? How, right. We're yeah. talking about a supermarket. That's always the first question that, that I get asked. And, uh, it, you know, I, I knew Market Basket because I'd lived in the area. I did my doctorate uh, in, uh, at Boston University. So I, I was well familiar with it. I have a lot of family in the area, too. So I knew it uh, from... Uh, the the sense of being a customer and having family members that were customers, but I really didn't know a whole lot about it. My expertise was never in supermarkets, um, but I got involved because it's it, this protest that happened last year was, it was so closely aligned with my research. Uh, I do research on corporate responsibility and marketing and and uh, business performance. So what I do is I look at when uh, when companies do charitable giving, environmental programs, all that kind of stuff. Uh, when does that contribute to business performance? And one day, I was just reading the paper, and uh, I saw an article in the Lowell Sun about this CEO that was possibly going to get fired, and thousands of people getting together to reinstate him or, or to make sure that you know to keep him in uh, in power at that point. And uh, they were doing it because he was provided a good workplace, a workplace with dignity, that he took care of customers and, that, and suppliers as well. All these people started coming around him uh, to, uh, to make sure that they didn't lose him as the CEO. I said, I've never seen 
anything so dramatic as this. You know, I, I do all these studies all the time. We're, we're look, you know, looking at a slight uptick in corporate responsibility and then see if there's a slight uptick in performance. But this was something really in your face. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's... it's I love that you said the Lowell Sun, by the way. Um, so for those of you that, are there, uh, that listen to the show but are sort of unfamiliar, I don't know that I've ever dug, dug into my high school life, but as I was telling Daniel right before we started recording, what really, I was the same way. I was fascinated with all of this, not because I lived in the area, although a long time ago I lived in the area and got the Lowell Sun. I, gr- I grew up in Groton, Massachusetts, not far from from uh, where a lot of this stuff happened. In fact, worked from middle school through high school and then even came home in the summers from college and worked at a market basket in, in Westford, Massachusetts. At a, and I should say at a Damula's market basket, right? But, um, and so to me, I mean, this was fascinating because I was sort of used to that environment. And, and what's weird, I, I guess the biggest thing is, that was weird to me was that I'm, I'm sort of watching this. And like you said, on one level, you're kind of fascinated. On the other level, I'm thinking through all of this stuff from my childhood and going, well, yeah, I had an amazing experience. It was a great. I mean, I stuck there for six years as like a part time at low minimum wage hourly job. But it was like enjoyable to a sense that I didn't realize that people who worked at other supermarkets were miserable. Right. Until I got out and sort of grew up in the world. I didn't realize that it was different anywhere else. Yeah, and I mean, supermarket business is like that. Everybody assume, I mean, when you shop places, you just figure all supermarkets are exactly the same. And for the most part, they are. Uh, but this one is a little, you know, everything you see in this place, there's a little subtle difference in it, right? So, uh, like, the, where I'd usually shop in Philadelphia, there's a super fresh there. And I go there, there's usually, like, one of the checkouts is open. Um, there's a heavy push trying to get people at the automated checkouts uh, and uh, Market Basket is very different. It's, um, you go in, all of the checkouts are open. There's, uh, there's sort of a hustle and bustle about the place. There are tons of employees on the floor while you're there shopping. Uh, and uh, and there is nothing seems automated. Anything that's automated is behind the scenes. Um, so what the company is going for is what they say is a person serving another person. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and everything at the company is built on these sort of relationships, and that's what ended up paying off when it came time for this protest. Yeah. So, I mean, so let's uh, let's talk a bit about that. I mean, I, I literally remember, like, I learned I learned uh, as a management professor. Now, my first, I was the front end manager running the uh, sort of checkouts in the evenings. Was my first sort of management experience, right? As like a nineteen year old. Although it's kind of interesting that as a, as an eighteen nineteen year old, they would trust me with anything like that. But you can kind of <laughs> do it when it's that relationship. How how much of that? Because because and I know that the book doesn't dive into this too much, uh, um, as far as like the thirty year history, but. How much do you think stems from how they were founded and, and how they expanded? I mean, in an, in an interesting way, the lawsuit came out about as a result of this being sort of a family business, but also it being a family business was what allowed them to sort of keep that relationship front, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And although, as you say, the, it's not the focus of, of the book, we do go all the way back to 1917 when it was founded by, uh, by Athanasios de Moulas was his name. He came over from Greece and started this business. And he started it in a very poor section of Lowell at a time when Lowell was uh, really, there was, the neighborhood was troubled in the sense that there were, there were a lot of poor working people. The people that were working were the lucky ones because the, uh, everyone else was out of a job from the textile mills that were all closing. Um, so even at that time, there was an idea at this very small supermarket, it was like 600 square feet, something like that. And, uh, but there was this idea that they were serving a community and that the fortunes of this business were tied in with the fortunes of this poor community. 
And that idea was passed down to his sons, two of his sons. And, uh, and those two sons had uh, more children, and they passed it down to them. Uh, it ended up that the two sort of leaders of that third generation were someone named Arthur T. DeMoulas. He's one of the central figures and many say the hero of the story. And someone named Arthur S. DeMoulas uh, on the other side of the family, who's a cousin, uh, who had a very different idea of what he wanted to do with the company. So it's these two cousins, Arthur T. and Arthur S., uh, that where, the, where the power struggle was for many years, three decades or so. Uh, and then uh, eventually the Arthur S. side uh, managed to fire Arthur T., who was the CEO and who was really, uh, he was really very closely, he, very much in the business and, uh, and shaping, shaping the business. Hmm. Now, yeah. now let me let me ask before we get into sort of the yeah. the firing and the backlash. He was he was shaping the business. He was the one that was really like making sure that there were great Christmas bonuses and making sure that there was a relationship with sort of everybody. In fact, I mean, I even remember if I if I can just to get personal here because why not? Um, I remember I I never met author uh, author uh, T while I was there, but I remember that I was uh, an assistant manager managing sort of the front end. I was a blue coat, right? If you've been in market basket a lot, I had the blue coat. The red coats were the uh, were the senior sort of the real full time salaried employees, and we even like even they were encouraged to take their staff out for a dinner. Uh, and actually, sometimes you'd have to do two because you'd have to have one pe- one group of people working while we had this celebratory dinner around Christmas time, then the other. Uh, than the other one. And all of that was that sort of relationship that was sort of set by the way that Author T led, right? So w- what is it about that sort of style that created this relationship? What are the type of things he made? What are the leadership lessons of Arthur T? Yeah, uh, at the practical level, you see a lot of uh, profit sharing kind of things, a lot of bonus, uh, you know, very generous bonuses, um, pension plan, where people, even if you don't rise up all the way to the executive level, you can leave with a, a really good uh, pension. Uh, and uh, so there's that monetary side of it. And then on the other side, what so many people tell us is that it's, um, it, it, there's a certain respect that you get as an employee there that you might not get in other places. As you said, you know, a lot of places you feel miserable. You feel like, you know, you don't, you, you can't, if you have an improvement that you want to suggest, there's nobody to tell, right? So, you're, so what ends up happening is a lot of people, and I'm sure many of the listeners can relate to this. I certainly can myself as well, is that sometimes you can get stuck in a job where you say, well, why should I do anything else? Why, why should I make suggestions, recommendations, or things when they're just going to get shot down? Um, and uh, at Market Basket, what I hear over and over is people say, well, there's always going to be somebody who's going to listen to that suggestion that I'm going to make. They might not take it, or they might give a reason why it's not going to work, uh, but there's a certain respect there. And so, the, um, so what I hear from a lot, and it's even, I think, become stronger under Arthur T., who took over... Um, around nine, uh, around uh, 2007 as the CEO. He's worked there since the, the, the 60s, but he's uh, took over as CEO then, is that he, he sort of has this idea, we call it in the book, reciprocal loyalty, where he's, he, he's loyal to many of the uh, associates and ex- expects the same loyalty back. Uh, and you, but you have to have both sides. It's not like a, it's not a one-way street. You know, a lot of times what you see is, uh, you know, even articles that, that I read and even I've hinted in the past that this before, there's this idea that we're not giving enough as leaders, right? Um, but here, here it's not so much that he's giving away the store to employees. It's that he's, he's kind of like it's a back and forth, right? 
So he says, I'm going to, and a lot of the employees, what they say is they, they're, there's kind of like that mental account at work. It's like, how much are you putting in and how much are you getting back, right? And, and so many people that I've spoken to, they feel that in that kind of mental account, um, they're just behind just a little bit, <laughs> just enough that they're going to do an extra something tomorrow. And then the company maybe will give them back a little bit more. And they always feel like a little bit behind. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's a very unique thing. I, I haven't seen that at, at other companies um, to this extent where you have like a mass of employees that, that where it's so diffuse, this feeling. Right. You know, I mean, my mind goes back to like thinking about attempts to build sort of leadership models. My mind goes back to like, this is probably what Greenleaf was talking about as the ideal for that servant leadership model that, mm-hmm. that like is almost unattainable, right? Because it's really difficult to do this. I, I love the term reciprocal loyalty, probably because servant leadership is overused. Um, but it, that's essentially the core is I, I give myself and give and make be loyal to you. And I trust that you'll sort of return it back. Right. And, and in this case, I mean, it literally worked. So we've, we've already given a preview of the story, but now we have, our, it looks like Arthur S and company wins and fires Daniel T. And then tell us a, about sort of the, re, the employee reaction and how all that shook down. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in any other company, when the board of directors decides that they're going to fire the CEO and sell the company. Uh, what most people do is they kind of hunker deck and they make sure that they're not fired as well. And that's pretty much the end of the story. They wait and see what happens. In, in this case, uh, a bunch of people walked out that day, the day that, he, that Arthur T. was fired. Uh, most stayed on for a few more weeks trying to work with the board saying, you have to re, uh, reinstate this guy. We're not going to go to work unless he's there. Uh, when those uh, demands um, when the board did not um, uh, give them those demands, they shut down the company. They, uh, they, a number of employees left the warehouse. Uh, all the folks at the warehouse walked off the job. Uh, so that completely stopped any shipments to the stores. I was actually there in those weeks, as, uh, and I would go into the stores uh, and look at the produce section, dwindling, 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 until I remember like at the end of a couple of weeks, there was no produce at all, except for a little pile of yams at the end of the corner of one thing. Um, and it was actually interesting to see what, how the produce turned over, right? Right, yeah, uh, you finally know. We, we do a great job to make sure you don't know, but now you do yeah, know what the shelf right. life of every, every piece of produce is. That's right, that's right, exactly. And uh, so it, it was interesting even from that standpoint, but, uh, but to see this, these stores gradually, the stocks dwindling like this, and uh, there, there are a lot, of, if uh, any listeners want to uh, look up Market Basket, you'll see tons of pictures of these empty shelves in the supermarket. And this is, you know, the, the uh, supermarket that is known to be bustling and they just like constantly keep the shelves replenished. They're so good at it. Oh, that was the, that was the last job every night was facing, bringing everything out to the front to make sure the shelves were totally stocked. That's right. And it just keeps going all day long like this, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the stores were losing stock. Um, and then uh, around the same time, they asked customers to boycott. And, boycott, and, and customers started a boycott pretty much the same day. Within two or three days, there were almost no customers at this thing. Two million customers shut off like a faucet. All right? And that wasn't the end of it because the vendors, the suppliers to this company, many of them said, we're not going to ship our products to you until Arthur T. is back. So you've got employees. They call themselves associates. Uh, we've got uh, customers We've got vendors, and then in come uh, a group of politicians, lawmakers. Uh, so we had um, uh, 
the mayors from different parts of, of the state senators, all these people, eventually governors even got involved. The governors of, of Massachusetts and, and New Hampshire had to get involved. So you've got all of these people on one side, two million people shutting down a $4.5 billion supermarket chain, the real powerhouse in the, in the region, uh, for six weeks last year. Um, uh, and just and all with this simple demand. Nobody. It, it wasn't about. It wasn't saying you have to raise our wages. It wasn't you know uh, this. We want more of the profit plan or or something. Anything like this. It was just we want this CEO back because he represents what this company is all about better than anyone else. Um, he's like the the he he kind of became a symbol of the culture of this place, which is really unique. Yeah, and the the other I mean super unique thing about this is so in addition like normally when there's there's some sort of strike it's we want you know better wages we want better conditions we want to go back and and re sort of collective bargain but there also wasn't a union and I mean in some level the the reciprocal loyalty the deep relationships with people kept the company from ever unionizing but there there wasn't an organized structure to get all of this I mean there wasn't a network to communicate all of this that we were going on strike like you would have in a unionized organization they did all of this sort of adhocracy network right that's absolutely right yeah it was all everything was on the fly everybody just took jobs somehow there there were eight senior managers who were at the center of this and they kind of set the tone of how they were going to go about it and they you know chose some dates to have these major rallies where 10 or 15,000 people came uh, but really it was most of it was very spontaneous it was just everybody pitching in as, as they thought uh, they should and uh, it, it was a very free form kind of a thing there was a lot going on on social media the Facebook page had 90 something thousand people on it um, that was kind of like a, an unofficial official page of this protest hmm. that they had uh, they had uh, there were customers who who got together. There were some customers. This is a crazy story. One of the five customers who still haven't met today. They've never met in person, but they got together and uh, and they organized to buy and write an ad that appeared in the Lowell Sun, which is a local paper that where the uh, the company was was originally founded and is headquartered right near there. Uh, they. They raised $20,000 from other customers, just small little donations, and they wrote this ad that basically said, we are the customers, um, we paid for this ad, and we're not going to shop at Market Basket until our CEO is back. Wow. Uh, and then they put at the end, wow. hashtag, you can't fire the customers, we quit. <laughs> 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 That's awesome. And, uh, oh, it was, it, I mean, unbelievable. Those five people that were kind of spearheading that initiative um, still haven't met today. They did it all over social media, and they each took their own little role. Uh, but, it, I mean, it, it really, it's, it was an amazing, amazing event. Yeah. And so and then, I mean, what happened? Because I'm I'm a whole time zone away from this now, 1500 miles away from this ever happening, watching this happen. And from the media that I'm watching, right, basically, author T comes back and, and then the news cycle picks up something else. So really, I mean, I didn't even get to see kind of the depth of what do you I mean, how do you come back from something like that? I mean, it, it, obviously, you get to come back. But what what did Arthur do? And how did how does the company sort of reintegrate after this giant event in their company history? Yep, the ending is, uh, by all accounts, a, a happy one. You can say the uh, the protesters um, put so much pressure on this board uh, that they uh, had to, the other side of the family sold all of their shares to Arthur T again. So now that Arthur T side, who was the CEO, owns uh, his side of the family owns a hundred percent of those shares. Uh, he was back in power that 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 day. Once they once they uh, agreed on the deal. 
which was last uh, uh, August uh, 27th of 2014. They agreed on that deal. That midnight, people started going back to work. The next morning, they were open. Um, there was someone who, who posted, one of the customers posted on Facebook. They said, I don't even own a dog, but if I... Uh, if all there is in the store is dog food to buy it, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> um, and he, they just couldn't wait to get in. And the warehouse people, most of them were back in the warehouse around 2 or 3 in the morning, uh, packing things up, trying to get the orders out, uh, and uh, all with smiles on their faces. And they're, they're going and, and trying to, they're kind of like trying to celebrate and at the same time ramp this company back up. I mean, that's a great way to celebrate. Go back to work. Isn't it? I mean, um, who would who would know, right? Uh, but that's that's exactly what they did, and uh, people went back to the offices. It was like a, a you know part party and, and part like an emergency, uh, you know, get get back on track. Yeah. And within about a week, they were from down. They were down ninety five percent of their sales during this boycott. Uh, within about a week, they were mostly back. And then within a month, you really couldn't tell any difference whether uh, that there had been a protest to begin with. Uh, so, and uh, so now they're really just committed to getting back into the grocery business, continuing their expansion. Um, and also, you know, I, I think they, many at the company would say that they're hoping that other people will learn from this as well. Yeah, I was going to say, let's talk about that, especially, I mean, you're a professor, right? This is like the best case study that could be written for a long time. What are the when when you look at the entire event, you look at the event in its entirety. What are the lessons that you can sort of take away from that about how to be a better leader, about how to structure a company? Uh, I mean, you come from a col- uh, corporate social responsibility standpoint. There's some really interesting, you know, tricks there about how to increase performance by sort of doing good. But what are the big kind of takeaways that you draw from this case? Absolutely, I, I think. I mean, I would start with the fact that the the relationships that this company built with the customers were what drove this whole thing because this is something where the it, had the employees gone on strike let's say i don't think they could have won uh, if they had just done it alone um, a customer boycott alone wouldn't have done it uh, and having suppliers pull out alone wouldn't have done it um, what what made this successful was that all of these people worked together they were all committed towards the same goal um, you hear this sometimes now in uh, with researchers, and you, you hear it at uh, at talks and things where people talk about uh, the purpose of the corporation, right? Where they say um, it it's helpful for people to have a purpose that's beyond their job. So, like people at this company, they'll often say, "Well, my job is um, I'm stocking the groceries in this aisle," uh, but that that's kind of what I do during the day. But my real job, what I'm trying to do, is I'm trying to help people get food on the table, right? Uh, and People started making these connections between keeping Market Basket alive as a company and keeping the community thriving in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. And when people, once people made that connection, they were all kind of committed to that connection, uh, then it, it, was, it was extremely motivating. So you've got, on the one hand, these relationships between people that were very strong to begin with that made everyone committed to the same thing. And what they were committing, committed to was this community service idea, which is really, really powerful. Um, and uh, and you know gave them that sort of resolve that uh, at other companies I think people would say well you know why not just let it go something else will come along in this case people said we can't let it go because there's nothing else like this 
Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I think I think there's a huge lesson in that reciprocal loyalty idea. And also, to be honest, the lesson that sort of the the network of a of a company, like you said, that the uh, associates, the vendors, the customers. I think it can be really tempting when you're in a senior leadership role to assume that everything connects back to you and that you're the node of keeping all of these afloat. But this lesson sort of proves that. Your, your employees are networked with your company, you're networked with your vendors, and all of that can happen even without you, right? And even yeah. if you want them to do sort of that opposite thing, that this is, and, and that I think underscores, to your point, the, the purpose of the corporation deal, because even if the senior leadership's actions are not in line with that purpose, the broader organization and even it's sort of the people connected to it will still serve that purpose, even if senior leaders don't. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And in this case, they said very strongly that uh, that they won't. And and you know, the, you've got the board also whose responsibility. Many people will say, well, the board's responsibility is just to shareholders because that's who elects them, and so that's who you're, you're supposed to be working for. It turns out um, in a lot of the, the studies that are coming out now in uh, from law, uh, and if you look at the Massachusetts corporate code, you'll find that the responsibility is not just to shareholders. Uh, in fact, in the, in the Massachusetts corporate code, it says very specifically the responsibility is to the corporation as a whole. Right. Uh, and that includes shareholders, but it also includes customers, it includes employees, it includes the, the community. Uh, so here, the board was really acting on behalf of some of the shareholders and ignoring all of these other people. And, th- and in this case, their relationships between e- themselves was so strong that they were able to get together and push back and say, you know, we're not going to have it. Uh, and so it's, I, I think it really, we have a lot more say as consumers, we have a lot more say as employees than we realize often. Uh, and, uh, and I'm hoping that other you know, companies will look at this, other stakeholders at the companies will look at it and, uh, and say, if you really feel strongly about the company and what it stands for, uh, then you should have a say in how it, in how it operates and, and, um, and, and what it does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the, the book again, We Are Market Basket, the story of an unlikely grassroots movement that saved a beloved business and fond memories from Dave Burkus. <laughs> uh, just, just kidding. As, as always, I want in the last time I want to shift from the book to you, ask you our five questions. So ready for five questions for Daniel Korshan. Oh, gosh. First okay. one. And I warned you about these after. So we've had 23 minutes. I, know, I thought you might forget. But okay, let's no, go. No, I got it. <laughs> What's the best advice you've ever received? Um, uh, I, let's see the best advice. Um, I think it's probably just to, to show, not, not tell people. Um, I don't, I don't know. There's a, a nice, uh, pithy expression for it that I can't remember, but the lesson is don't try to tell people, just demonstrate and let them come to their own conclusions. Love it. That is a, one from my doctoral program. All right. And, and when you're, when you're not, uh, when you're not writing, when you're not taking pictures of the the lone yam in the the <laughs> produce department, what's an average day look like for you? Average day, I'm probably uh, teaching a couple of hours, so I'll be in the classroom. Uh, that means I'm preparing for that teaching beforehand for a few hours, um, and then uh, afterwards, usually I'm I'm writing. So I'm I'm at my desk a lot, uh, writing, crunching numbers, and coming up with the next research paper. Oh. Yeah, I wish it could be more exciting. <laughs> Um, if you chose a vacation day, I might be kayaking or uh, oh, there you go. something along those lines. All right. Yeah. Um, speaking of research, uh, in a way, what are you reading right now? 
Uh, I just opened up. I, uh, I found this while I was uh, right after kayaking. <laughs> I, uh, I found it in my my parents' house. Uh, a book on William uh, on Warren Buffett, um, which is uh, I'm not to be honest. I'm not even sure which one it is. Uh, I just started digging into it. Some fascinating ideas about investing and about not going with. Uh, with the the most exciting industry, but to, very often the opportunities are are to be found in uh, in industries that have been around for a while and that are more predictable. Hmm. Now for the tough one, you ready? What okay. Do you, what do you believe that most people don't? Um, I I think one of one of the beliefs, at least business wise, is this idea that companies can be much more than than they have been, and that than we think uh, that. You know, I mean, I some I've gone into some uh, some sessions where I speak to people who are you know just one hundred percent all about finance, and I've gotten some of the most glaring looks that I could ever <laughs> you could ever imagine from people saying, uh, you know, why are you challenging this way of thinking? Um, because I, I think that the corporations, there's a lot of good that they, that they could do. Uh, we really haven't scratched the surface of that yet. I think we've done a very poor job in the last fifty years. Do you think standing in the way is that idea that the board serves shareholder value above everything else? And if we could change that idea, we could start doing more good? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a gigantic obstacle. Uh, and I'm hoping personally to be one of the people that, uh, that pushes against it. I'm, I'm certainly not alone, but uh, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. Last question, question number five. The title of the show is Radio Free Leader, and we're speaking to leaders and aspiring leaders. What do you think makes someone a leader? Um, for me, I think the key to, to leadership is two things. One is getting people excited about pe- things that you're excited about, and uh, the other is building that reciprocal loyalty. Uh, so is that it's it's giving, but it's also expecting something in return. And I think the best leaders uh, do both. Uh, they don't give away the store, but they don't try to soak people for everything they're worth. Oh, I love it. I love it. As we've said a couple times, the the book is called We Are Market Basket. It's an unlikely story, and it's an amazing case about leadership. You can, I'm sure you can type that into Google and find it. Daniel, where can we find more information about you? Uh, you can find me at uh, Drexel University through our, our website. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter. Uh, it's usually the handle is uh, Daniel Corshin. Uh, So I'm pretty easy to find through any of those ways. Perfect. Awesome. That sounds great. Again, I want to encourage people to check out the book. You'll learn more about where I spent my childhood uh, in part-time business going through school. You'll also learn an amazing story of reciprocal leadership, of servant leadership. So please check that out. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you so much for having me. 